Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sex and pornography. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, I'm talking about porn, the pros and the cons. Porn. Even saying the word for much of the 20th century conjured up something taboo. From that copy of Playboy or Hustler hidden on the very top rack of the convenience store shelf, to grimy theaters, to the very, very back of the slightly dodgy video rental place, porn, for many people in the past century, was something they had to go looking for, something you had to seek out. But that all changed in the last couple of decades. With the invention of high-speed internet and streaming technology, porn is very easily accessed by anyone with an internet connection. A large American study estimated that 94% of men and 86% of women have watched porn at some point in their lives. Men report higher frequency of usage compared to women, with an average of a few times a month, while women report more occasional use. These are, of course, averages, and there will be people who view porn multiple times a day and people who never do. There's a wide range. The increase in the availability of porn has also been associated with an increase in arguments about whether or not porn is harmful. This argument focuses on concerns about the treatment of performers in porn, concerns about people becoming addicted to porn, and concerns about porn ruining our sex lives and our relationships. Porn is a hot topic that brings up a lot of emotion, and it affects a majority of us living in our internet-saturated world. It's rare to find someone who doesn't have an opinion about porn. Even researchers who claim to be studying porn from an unbiased perspective are very rarely unbiased. In today's episode, I'll explore some of the positives and negatives about porn and see how many people hate me by the end. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... Jeremy is back. I know most of you didn't know he was gone, (laughs) but after over two months away in Vancouver, Jeremy has returned to help me live in person. Except we are social distancing from one another right now, um, so I'm feeling stressed out about even being in the same room. He's wearing a mask, but I am not. So if I get coronavirus from this episode, I hope it was worth it. Aw, so nice to have such a warm welcome. I know. (laughs) There's a reason they call me the Ice Queen. (laughs) Jeremy has also brought a brand new pop filter for the microphone, which is very timely considering I'm talking about pornography (laughs) and saying a P sound every two seconds pretty much throughout this entire episode. Yes, good timing. Yes. And while we both watch porn, I think Jeremy has more experience watching than I do, and I was curious to get your input on your porn journey. (laughs) What would you like to know? Well... I guess when you were learning about sexuality, how influential was porn? How, like, when did you start watching porn regularly? What was your journey? Well, let's see. When I was a kid, so my early teens, like when I was 12 or 13, of course, 
there was a friend who knew where his dad's uh, VHS stash was. Classic. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of predictable. And uh, yeah, there was, uh, I do recall Ron Jeremy was in it. And yeah. And then that, uh, they kind of unleashed the, uh, the era where you just found porn here and there. Um, before you know, another pr- friend had Debbie Does Dallas. Mm. And then you find the penthouses in the woods. Well, usually Playboy. I find it so fascinating that virtually every single person I know <laughs> has found Playboy or Penthouse magazines in the woods. It's so funny. And I didn't realize it was a universal thing that happened yeah. until I was listening to a podcast and they started joking about, Did, didn't you guys do that? You, f- you found the porno in the woods? And then it's like, yeah, totally. I'm like, wow, okay. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, what else do we need to know? So fast forward to adulthood. You're living on your own. What are we at? The 90s? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess I was never like a rabid porn consumer when I first moved out. Um, I bought a couple of Playboys because I could, you know, mm-hmm. I remember like, ooh, Shannon Doherty. Yeah, let's let's do this. But uh, and then I just never really bought one again. Like once I got over the thrill of being able to do it, mm-hmm. and, you know, as porn came up. So this is the early 90s. Yeah. Porn just didn't come up that much um, during that time. And then with the dawn of the internet, um, again, like I felt really weird kind of sitting at a computer and jerking off at a digital image. It felt funny to me. And also in the early 90s, I'm sure people remember. Or like do you mean late dial- 90s? Late 90s. I'm sure in the late 90s, um, uh, when you're on your dial-up connection, you had to wait forever to get that image, <laughs> see if it actually is an image. And then, yeah, and then you're, you know, doing your thing to an image that's like 200 by 300. and So not so even a video. Uh, it could be just, yeah, yeah. I mean, video was like pretty rare back then, mm. right? And that'd be like a super... So if you can get a video, it's like a big treat, right? Mm-hmm. And um, But I didn't do that all the time. Like, I wasn't doing that every night. It was mm-hmm. just kind of like an occasional treat. Mm-hmm. And once the advent of high-speed internet came along and free porn, um, yeah, I just tend to use it kind of, you know semi-regularly now mm-hmm. so it's just become part of your regular rotation you've got to, gotten over the fear of masturbating in front of a screen <laughs> <laughs> yes well now that it's good quality it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it it's acceptable yes right <laughs> i must have hd porn <laughs> is that true it has to be hd <laughs> no that's not true at all <laughs> although i do appreciate a well-filmed pornography yes. fair, fair. Yeah. All right. of which there is precious little <laughs> indeed so yeah, I think your journey is relatively typical of the average 50-year-old. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder the difference between kids who used to have to search for porn <laughs> and find secret stashes versus kids today who have access to it pretty much anytime they want. Um, and I don't think porn necessarily affects fully grown brains, or not in dramatic ways, but I think we don't understand how it's affecting younger brains. Hmm. And there's some research on this, but you can't really pin down the effects of something because you're not going to be able to manipulate a situation where you give half of 14-year-olds exposure to hardcore pornography and half of them block all of their exposure and see what the outcomes are. Most of what we know is correlational and we don't know what precedes what. Like, do certain highly sexual people maybe seek out porn more and then that in turn affects their behavior? Does, uh, yeah, and do less highly sexual people are less likely to seek out porn and maybe look differently in their behavior? It's 
yeah, a, a very confusing and difficult thing to study. So that would require a massive <laughs> study that's probably unethical too, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. But let's see what we do know and what the research about porn does say. There's so much debate about pornography in research. I would say it's one of the most emotionally and politically charged areas of sex research. This is partly driven by non-sex researchers in the general public who are fighting against pornography. And I think the politicized nature of pornography outside of research leads researchers to being extra sensitive to it, too. For example, even the definition is regularly debated. Some argue that pornography is distinct from erotic films, that porn is specifically imagery that is degrading to women and only focuses on male pleasure, while erotica is more focused on mutual pleasure of all involved. Many of these debates don't even mention queer porn as a possibility. One of the human sexuality textbooks I've used in my classes defines porn as sexual using, specifically of women, and erotica as sexual sharing. I do think the discrepancies between different categories of porn are important, but I also think that the average viewer rarely thinks in terms of porn versus erotica. Pornography, the word, is just such a loaded term, and usually in scientific research, we try to use more neutral terms to describe the concepts we are studying. Many researchers use the term sexually explicit material, SEM, or visual sexual stimuli, VSS, when discussing porn and erotic films and images. I actually like these phrases for their neutrality. However, those who are opposed to pornography argue that this type of language detracts from the harmfulness that is specific to porn. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to use porn as a shorthand to refer to all sexually explicit material, mainly because it's easiest to say and because it's the term most people are familiar with. I do want to note how complicated all this is, though. For full disclosure, I use porn in my research. Many of my studies involve people coming into my lab and watching porn while I measure their arousal. All of the porn used in my lab is made by women for women, but it does explicitly show sex acts. It is hardcore pornography. I thought it was important to clarify that this is part of my work. Although I use porn in my research, I don't really talk about porn as a topic of research. My work focuses on stress and arousal, I've only done one study about porn, and wow, it was an experience. The porn study was an idea from one of my honors students, Alicia French, and it involved two parts. So far, we've only published the first part, and submitting to journals was unlike anything I had experienced in the past. In this study, we are interested in looking at whether the types of porn people watched, specifically male-centric porn versus female-centric porn, were related to the things they engaged in in real life, and also how the type of porn they watched was related to the positives or negatives they experienced from watching it. The first journal we submitted this article to had three reviews, and one of them was so judgmental and non-scientific, I had to apologize to my undergraduate student and explain to her that usually reviews were not this unprofessional. In general, the reviewers felt the paper had an anti-porn bias. This was primarily because we found that people reported almost no negative effects of porn, 
And so we added a sentence saying that people generally aren't great at recognizing the negative effects of their behaviors. This is something that's commonly found in other areas of psychology research. We are really good at justifying our behavior and not seeing the negatives. But apparently acknowledging this in the context of porn was evidence we were anti-porn and clearly biased. The paper was rejected. We submitted it again to a second journal using a slightly revised manuscript. And this time it came back with reviews that went in the opposite direction. We were told that the paper was biased as being too pro-porn, probably because we found that most people reported mostly positives of porn use. The paper was rejected. So this almost identical paper resulted in opposing accusations of bias, depending on who was reading it. This is similar to what researchers see in findings of people on opposing political parties. So people with opposing political viewpoints can view the same video or read the same article and perceive it as biased in opposite directions. We finally did get that paper published, but the process of getting it published was far more interesting than the paper itself in understanding perspectives on porn. The experiences I had trying to publish a paper about porn is a reflection of the debates that are happening at a societal level. So let's get into some of them. From my perspective, possibly one of the most pressing concerns is how porn performers, especially women, are treated. Mainstream heterosexual porn is male-dominated and made to depict men's pleasure. There is usually little attention paid to women's pleasure at all. Researchers have done content analyses of porn videos, which means analyzing what happens in lots and lots of videos to identify patterns. The research supports the claim that a majority of mainstream heteroporn videos do focus primarily on male pleasure, and that many films depict women as objects. Women's pleasure is rarely the focus in mainstream heterosexual porn. One example of a content analysis was a study of teen and MILF porn, specifically looking at the top 100 videos in each category on free sites, and the researchers found that less than 50% of those top 100 videos showed manual stimulation of a woman's genitals, and even fewer than that showed oral sex on a vulva. Of course, almost all of them showed penetrative intercourse, penis, and vagina, and almost all of them showed oral sex on a penis. And unless a video was explicitly about squirting, I don't think I've ever seen a woman in mainstream porn have an orgasm. Although a content analysis looking at orgasms did find that approximately 18% of the videos they examined showed uh, a woman having an orgasm compared to about 80% of men. Mainstream heteroporn is one-sided and focused on male pleasure. There's no doubt that many of the mainstream porn companies making films that depict women as objects also treat their performers poorly. Evidence for this has accumulated in books and articles and other testimonials from porn performers and in documentaries. Of course, different performers have different experiences, and different companies are going to treat their performers differently. People are often quick to portray sex workers as being victimized. And I want to be clear that the majority of people participating in porn are doing so willingly. There's just a range of experiences for women in mainstream porn. I certainly think that some performers are victims who are being exploited, but many choose porn as a job. Some performers love the work they do, and some are indifferent to it but do it for a paycheck. Lots of people do jobs with their bodies that they don't love. So much of the capitalist system is built on exploitation, but the concern over sex workers is disproportionate to the actual experience of their labor. 
I do also think that there is potential for a lot of harm to be done to women in the porn industry, and I don't want to gloss over that. It's important to listen to the voices of the performers, though, and not the people who speak for them. It's also important to note that there are porn options outside of mainstream porn. If you are concerned about the treatment of porn performers or the ethicality of the porn you watch, and I think you should be, you can do research into different porn companies and see how they treat their performers. You can also see if they have deals with streaming sites or if their content is being stolen. If you're watching free porn, it's highly likely the content was stolen and no one you see in that video is being compensated. Journalist John Ronson has an excellent podcast series called The Butterfly Effect, where he talks about the harm that free tube sites have caused to the porn industry and by association, porn performers. It's only seven episodes and is very interesting. There are many indie porn companies that create content in collaboration with performers and allow them more agency than mainstream porn. There are also indie porn companies that explicitly focus on producing porn for people other than heterosexual men. If you enjoy porn, but are concerned about the ethics of viewing free porn, or if you're looking for porn that isn't the usual male-focused hetero porn, do some research to find producers you like and pay for your porn. The first female-led porn production company was Femme Productions, started by Candida Royale in 1984. She had been a porn performer and wasn't thrilled with the way women were treated or the kinds of videos that were being produced, so she decided to create porn that women would like. Now, with the availability of technology and streaming, there has been an explosion in independently produced porn, which allows for a much wider variety of content, representing a much wider variety of bodies, types of sex, target audiences, etc. This has been one benefit of technology, increasing the accessibility of creating porn outside a limited number of white men in California who controlled much of the porn industry for so long. If you're interested, there are subscription sites such as IndiePornRevolution.tv, the Crashpad series, PinkLabel.tv, Belessa.co, or if you would prefer audio porn, Dipsy is a great option for high-quality stories. Make Love Not Porn is a site run by former ad executive Cindy Gallup that features what she calls videos of real people having sex. She wanted to show actual sex as opposed to performance sex, and we'll hear more from her later on in the episode. On all the sites I've listed, you can find sexual videos or porn made by and for hetero women, but also queer porn, fetish porn, BDSM porn, basically all the same stuff that you can find for free on sites, but you can be assured that the performers are being treated well and are being paid appropriately. A good place to find recommendations is via the Feminist Porn Awards website. The awards don't seem to be happening anymore, but you can find past films on the website still. And if you're interested in softcore erotic films, one I've had recommended to me is Blue Artichoke, which is a website that has high-quality softcore erotica. The sites I've listed here are just a few. I encourage you to Google around to find what you like. There are also mainstream porn sites that have pay-for-play models if you want to not view stolen content. Unfortunately, even feminist porn isn't without controversy. There have been abuse accusations against one of the top performers in women-centric porn, and also against one of the top producers of feminist porn. So please do your research when deciding where to spend your money. The 
other side of the coin is the discussion around harm to people who watch porn. A lot of the claims of harm come from the assumption that porn is addictive. There are a lot of debates about what constitutes an addiction, especially when we're talking about a behavioral addiction as compared to a substance use addiction. For those who believe pornography is inherently harmful and who support the idea of a pornography addiction, the key arguments are as follows. First, there is the AAA engine, a concept defined by Al Cooper in 1998, which stands for accessibility, affordability, and anonymity. Cooper felt the AAA engine was responsible for the increase in compulsive behavior related to pornography on the internet. In his early work, Cooper warned it could lead people to reinforce sexual fantasies that they wouldn't have otherwise realized. It could lead people to distance themselves from their real-world relationships and could, for some, lead to a sort of addiction. So the concern about porn or access to other sexual things on the internet was present from the early in the development of broadly available internet. Keep in mind that the initial concerns were being mounted back in 1998, when we were still in the time of dial-up internet. For those who haven't experienced dial-up, it would take probably an entire minute, maybe longer, to get on the internet, and as Jeremy mentioned, a lot of time to even download one image or one video. From a psychological understanding of reinforcement of behavior, dial-up has nothing on what we have now. A quick primer on the psychology concept of reinforcement. So a reinforcer is something that increases the likelihood of a behavior happening again. So something that is reinforcing results in a reward reaction in the brain. So you can have a reinforcer that is something that increases pleasure and reward, like eating something delicious. So you eat the thing, it tastes great, you feel good, and so you're likely to do that thing again. You can also have a reinforcer that takes away negative consequences. For example, a toddler throwing a temper tantrum because they don't want to eat something. If that temper tantrum results in them not having to eat the thing, the negative thing is taken away, so it makes the tantrum behavior more likely to happen again. Adults 100% do this too, by the way, but usually in more subtle ways. Sex is what's called a primary reinforcer. And primary reinforcers are things that we don't have to learn are rewarding like throwing a tantrum. They are things that are innately rewarding for all mammals. So primary reinforcers are things like food, drink, and sex. Porn, by association, is also a reinforcer, especially if it leads to orgasm. If it makes us feel good, we will likely repeat the behavior. Since we now have high-speed internet and streaming sites, the concern from proponents of porn addiction has dramatically increased. Because we can watch porn quickly and easily at the click of a button all day, every day, the experience of doing so can be more reinforcing. There's no delay for downloading that can interfere with the reward, like in the dial-up days. It's just always there. Porn addiction proponents argue that constant access to pornography is rewiring our brains. To make this argument, they use a hodgepodge of neuroscience research to essentially demonstrate that sex is reinforcing and alters rodent brains and behavior and sometimes human brains, so therefore porn must be doing the same thing. I poked around at some blogs and videos from the anti-porn website Fight the New Drug as I was preparing for this episode, and wow. Fight the New Drug and other similar organizations use a lot of neuroscience research that is not done on porn, and then extrapolate it to porn. They do use actual research, but then interpret it in a way that is just not accurate. 
like studies of rats who had their first sexual experiences with certain smells and then are essentially trained to get aroused whenever they smell that thing. So yes, that happens, but what does that have to do with porn? If part of the argument that continuous access to porn videos affects you in this specific way, that, and especially that it interferes with your ability to have sex with others, why would studies of rat sex have anything to do with the effects of porn? Another problem with the argument that porn specifically rewires our brains is that all enjoyable things affect your brain in similar ways. Websites that talk about porn's effect on the brain do not make it clear that the exact same things happen with many stimuli. What we see is an added layer of concern about porn because it's sex-related. And the porn addiction activists argue that porn is unique, but then sex addiction therapists and researchers make similar arguments. It just really doesn't add up. Porn is reinforcing, yes, but your cell phone is much worse. Tech companies use all sorts of psychological research to make sure that you use apps on your phone more regularly and stay on them longer. Every time you get a notification, it could be a marketing email from a company you don't care about, or it could be an important message from a friend. You just never know. And that's what keeps you coming back for more. Porn doesn't have these same properties, but it's definitely reinforcing, and it can have the effect of leading some people to watch it more than they would want. Porn itself, though, is not inherently, quote, addicting. In an article called The Emperor Has No Clothes, researchers David Lay, Nicole Prousey, and Peter Finn review the arguments for pornography addiction and demonstrate that many of them do not have evidence to support them. One shift that happens in addiction is that usage of a substance shifts from liking, which is one brain system, to wanting or craving, which is another brain system. And so far, this shift doesn't seem to be demonstrated with pornography. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but it's hard to document if it does, and we don't have data on it yet. They go through the research on neuroscience of addiction and specifically what happens to your brains when you look at sexual images to show that there's not really a lot of overlap between the addiction research on brains and the sex research on brains. We're looking at porn and brains. They also propose alternative explanations that explain why people could potentially have compulsive reactions or feel out of control with their porn usage. I think it's safe to say that whether or not porn is addictive is highly debatable. What isn't debatable is that there are definitely people who struggle with compulsive pornography use. Just like how many people can be casual gamblers and play $10 on the slots and walk away, while a minority of people become unable to stop gambling, even if it ruins their life, the same can happen for pornography, or really with anything that's reinforcing. But it's a very small minority of people. The vast majority of people who watch porn do so with no problems. It's an enjoyable hobby that they engage in, while for others it can feel completely out of control. Religiosity is a factor that's been shown to predict a higher likelihood of someone reporting they are addicted to porn. Within religions that police sex and associate shame with certain kinds of sex or sexual experiences, the feeling of being wrong and bad can be like gasoline on the fire in terms of porn usage. Shame is a big factor here. If you remember from episode 18 when I talked about shame being the explanation for everything, here is one of those many things. So if someone believes their porn usage is morally wrong or makes them a bad person, then they will feel shame when they look at it. 
Shame makes them feel bad, so they need pornography to take away the bad feeling, but using porn makes them feel shame, so they feel bad again. (laughs) It's a vicious cycle to get into. Really, the more someone hides themselves because of shame, the worse the problem will get, and the more they will engage in this behavior that they see as bad and wrong because it seems like the only escape from the shame. There are other reasons why people start using porn as a way to escape also. It's like anything else. When we're unhappy in our lives, we seek ways to feel better. For some people, porn is that thing. I don't think porn is unique in the list of things that make us feel good and could be used for escapism. I do think it gets treated as unique because we're so judgy about sex things. Porn usage itself isn't the problem, it's a symptom of a problem. There are, of course, other contributing factors to any compulsive behavior that would also apply to compulsive use of pornography or that feeling of being out of control in pornography use. And the fact that we see similarities across so many domains tells us it's not about the porn. It's about the environment or the psychology of the individual or a number of other factors that contribute to the compulsiveness. And if it wasn't porn for that person, it would probably be something else. So I think that's important to keep in mind uh, when we talk about porn. Porn has also been accused of being responsible for violence against women, ruining sex, and interfering with relationships. Let's address each one of these issues. So there does seem to be a link between pornography and attitudes towards violence against women. When looking across all correlational studies between porn and attitudes supportive of violence against women, there was a small relationship between watching violent porn and endorsing violence against women, and a smaller relationship between nonviolent porn and endorsing violence against women. With correlational studies, we can't say anything about cause and effect, though. All we know is that people who watch more porn are slightly more likely to say that they support things like rape myths, that they're higher in sexual harassment proclivities, and acceptance of interpersonal violence. We don't know if people who are high in these things are more likely to seek out porn, or specifically violent porn, or if porn increases these anti-woman attitudes. Probably a bit of both. More recent analyses have also shown that factors such as hostile masculinity are predictive of both watching porn, violent porn specifically, and anti-woman attitudes. There have been experiments done as well, but it's hard to extrapolate from an experiment where someone comes into a lab, is shown one porn video, and then they're asked to perhaps engage in something harmful to a woman in the next room. So for example, these studies, some of them after watching like a violent porn clip, they're asked to play a loud noise in the person in the, to the person in the next room, and people who've watched violent porn pl- have been shown to play a louder noise, which is interpreted as being more violent. There are also studies that tried to challenge this and show that videos that didn't include porn could elicit the same response. And so, for example, one study found that just watching violence increased the likelihood of violence, even without sexual content. But keeping in mind, again, these one-off studies where you're just watching one video one time, does that really apply to real life? We don't know. So overall, there does seem to be some relationship between porn, particularly violent porn, and violence against women. But as I said already, we don't really know the direction of this effect. We don't know if people who have violent attitudes already seek out the porn or vice versa. 
When it comes to how porn affects our sex life, there are two key things that tend to come up. One is that porn is causing erectile dysfunction or sexual problems in men in real-life sexual situations. And the other is that porn is changing the way people are having sex. There are no causal studies that can demonstrate that porn causes erectile dysfunction. There are internet forums where many men blame their erectile problems on porn, however. One of the arguments is that for people whose entire sex lives revolve around masturbating to porn, that real life just cannot compare. Related to this is the argument that for people who consume a lot of porn, their usage and interests become more extreme and more deviant over time, as though porn is a drug that builds a tolerance that requires more intense and violent scenes to get aroused. Again, while there are men on internet sites that do complain about this experience, the vast majority of men do not have escalating porn tastes. On Fight the New Drug, they cite data that says over half of 1,500 men surveyed felt their pornography taste had become increasingly extreme or deviant. But the sample was drawn from the Reddit NoFap forum. For those who aren't familiar with this, NoFap is a forum dedicated to discussing the harms of masturbation and where men go to pledge that they're going to stop masturbating and watching porn. So it's clearly not an unbiased sample. (laughs) The survey and the data are no longer available on Reddit, so we can't verify any of the information. Other claims that are made on anti-porn websites like Fight the New Drug or another one called Your Brain on Porn are that there are papers that state since the 90s, the numbers of men with erectile dysfunction have increased. They correlate this with the advent of more access to porn on the internet, but one alternative explanation for that is that Viagra was introduced in 1998. The introduction of Viagra dramatically increased our awareness of erectile dysfunction and the motivation for doctors to prescribe this medicine and diagnose erectile dysfunction. Also on Fight the New Drug, the claim is made that because porn increases your need for more deviant sex, it interferes with forming healthy relationships with others. Before the recording, Jeremy and I were talking about all of these claims uh, in terms of his porn use, and I thought I'd get him to tell his anecdotal story about porn use over the decades. So I guess for me, I was generally just kind of looking at the same porn for years, you know, decades, I suppose. I didn't find like it escalated much, you know, just kind of settled into the things I like and stayed there. And for me, um, like my kind of my turn ons didn't really change until I got back into the real real world dating and meeting new people and getting exposed to new ideas. And then my turn ons changed in the real world because I was talking to real people, (laughs) Uh, not because of what I was viewing online. Right. So even though you were watching porn during your 10-year marriage, once you got out of your marriage, that's when your interest started to change because you're interacting with actual humans who you had actual feelings for. Yes, yes. And yeah, you get exposed to people who are into different things and new ideas and yeah. <laughs> so the real the real world escalated me, not uh, <laughs> not porn. And while, of course, your single person experience is not data, it's just an anecdote. So much of the anti-porn stuff is based off of other people's stories and anecdotes. And so I think it's also important to inject these counter-narratives into the story. Agreed. As an aside, I also wanted to add that a lot of the anti-porn sites use the word prove. So for example, a quote from Fight the New Drug is, hundreds of studies prove 
But no scientists use the word prove. In research, we're aiming to collect data that will either provide support for or refute any given thing. It's extremely rare that anything is actually proven to a degree that we would use the word prove. Unless you're talking about math, which is all about proofs. So one of the claims about porn also is that it can change how we have sex. And one of the benefits that's been found in research that people say about porn is that it's used as sex education. And I don't know if this is necessarily a true benefit since porn depicts sex in performative and unrealistic ways, but I do think the porn we watch can shape our world. For example, when porn performers started removing pubic hair so it was easier to see vulvas on camera, this trend caught on in the real world. Porn is a source of sexual scripts, one of many sources, and it can influence how we have sex in real life. Another anecdotal example of how porn might influence us comes from Cindy Gallup, the founder of Make Love Not Porn. Here's an excerpt from her TED Talk where she discusses the shift that she has seen in younger men. She's in her 50s at the time of this talk and has dated and had sex with a lot of men in her time. She personally has clearly noted a change. I date younger men, predominantly men in their 20s. And when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men. And when I have sex with younger men, I encounter very directly and personally the real ramifications of the creeping ubiquity of hardcore pornography in our culture. So in an era where hardcore porn is more freely and widely available on the internet than ever before, and where kids are therefore able to access it at a younger and younger age than ever before. There is an entire generation growing up that believes that what you see in hardcore pornography is the way that you have sex. She explains in her TED Talk and in many other interviews that she's done that she wanted to make her site Make Love Not Porn to re-educate people about what actual sex looks like as opposed to porn sex. She also emphasizes that what might be ubiquitous in porn, like coming all over somebody's face, does not need to be present in our actual sex lives if one party does not enjoy it. I do worry about how porn affects young people. Early sexual experiences seem to have important influences on how we form our sexual selves. If someone spends the first, say, five years of their sexual lives masturbating to pornography that does not show female pleasure, how does that affect them? I don't think we know. Young people today are basically in a giant experiment. If you're a parent, I would encourage your kids to masturbate with and without porn. Remind them of the joys of imagination. I've talked a lot about anti-porn activists, but pro-porn activists have the same sort of rigid views around pornography. Usually they're quick to jump on anyone who says anything negative about porn, saying that's ridiculous, there's no data to support that. But what I would like to point out is that there's some data to support some of these things in some people. And for a lot of it, we just don't know. And I think it's okay to be cautious. The last fear around porn that I'll touch on is the idea that porn destroys relationships. There are lots of internet forums on this, but very little research. One study found that for a minority of heterosexual men and women, men's use of porn reduced their interest in sex with their partner and made them more critical of their partner's appearance. That was only a minority, though. The majority of people in the sample didn't think porn affected their relationships negatively. Another study that included participants in a forum of women concerned about their husband's porn usage 
did find that porn negatively affected their views of themselves, their partners, and their relationships. Of course, that was a very specific sample of people who were on the internet to complain about their concerns about their partners. There are also studies that show that porn usage by one partner in a relationship is correlated with more relationship dissatisfaction. But again, these kinds of studies have a chicken and an egg problem. Which came first? Do dissatisfied people stop having sex and seek out more porn as a solution? Or does porn lead to dissatisfaction? We just don't know. It's clear that porn can be a problem for some relationships. But similar to issues of problematic porn use, the issue is within the relationship. It's not caused by the porn. And if there's anything I've learned from my many years of therapy, it's that if I have a strong emotional reaction to something, it's more about me than it is about the other person. So if porn is causing distress to you in your relationship, figure out why that problem is caused for you personally. There's also research on the benefits of porn. The primary purpose of porn is to create arousal, so it can be used for that purpose. It can help increase arousal both when alone or with a partner. In partnered viewing, porn can be a way to shift your brain from the stresses of the day into a more erotic mindset. Viewing porn with a partner can jumpstart arousal that can then shift into focusing on your partner. Studies of desire and arousal has demonstrated that for some people, desire comes after arousal. This is called responsive desire. We've talked about it before. One way to activate responsive desire is to watch an erotic video, start to feel aroused, and then feel desire for sex. In Canada, and particularly in Quebec, but I think it was shown all across Canada, Blue Nuit was a regular softcore porn series shown on television late at night. I imagine it must have been responsible for activating desire in many a tired Canadian over the decades. Another was the Red Shoe Diaries with David Duchovny. I don't have cable, so I don't know if there's still random softcore porn available on TV these days, but this is something that I imagine could be helpful for stimulating desire. In the research, there's a survey on positive and negative effects of porn. And the positives that are listed in this survey include things like porn teaches people new sexual techniques, porn helps people learn more about their desires, and porn increases experimentation in their sex lives. And these are all things that people endorse as positives of their porn experiences. Studies of the positive effects of porn find it can bring excitement into the sex lives of couples. Some women report that it increases their enjoyment of their sex life and facilitates open-mindedness and communication about sexual needs and desires. In a qualitative study, both men and women reported that pornography use broadened their sexual horizons by providing information about new sexual acts and increasing their level of sexual confidence. Another survey found that women were more likely to use pornography within their relationship as opposed to by themselves, and suggested that pornography serves as a, quote, Viagra effect for couples. Porn can also be useful for masturbation if you're alone. Masturbation is a great way to de-stress and get out of your head, and it might be hard to get started if you're worrying about things and your mind is all over the place. So having something get you in that erotic state of mind, even when you're by yourself, can be really helpful. And masturbation is a form of self-care. So I realize this section on the positives of porn is a little shorter than the sections on the negatives. Um, but that's because I think the positives are more straightforward and the negatives are more challenging and involve more debate. Porn is a divisive topic. I myself often feel conflicted about mainstream porn. Men treat women horribly in this industry. 
But also, porn is hot and sexy, and there are so many producers who are doing it well and ethically. That part is at least reassuring. What I hope was clear from today's episode is that porn itself is usually not the problem, and that you're not a bad person if you watch porn, even a lot of it, and even if it feels like it's out of control. If you're happy with your porn usage and don't feel like it's interfering with your life, great. If you are concerned that the porn you watch is unethical, there are alternatives. If you have problems with compulsive or out-of-control porn use, it's probably a symptom of a bigger problem. I encourage you to explore what's happening in your life or the world around you that's contributing to your problematic porn use. Porn can work as a reinforcer in that it makes us feel good, but it can also be used to take away negative feelings like anxiety. Some people use it for the pleasure aspect, and some people use it for the taking away bad feelings aspect. Both can be useful, and both can potentially get out of control. We live in a sex-negative world where the majority of people watch porn, but we rarely talk about it. If you feel shame around your porn usage, I encourage you to try to let that go. Or perhaps practice fantasizing without porn. As I said previously, porn, especially ethically made porn, can be an enhancement to your sex life. It can help you explore your desires, uncover new ones, and help communicate with your partners. Overall, porn is complicated, but as adults, we can make choices that are best for us. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>